Thank you, John. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, as we continue in Titus this morning, as we get into this second chapter, we ask, please, that you would show each one of us what it is that we need to hear from your word today. We want to live your ways, knowing what the Lord Jesus has done for us and what he will do for us. And so, please, today, would you challenge each one of us wherever it is that we find ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you ever sat there and you thought to yourself, man, the preacher's waffling on. I wish we could have a sermon that was just all application. You ever thought that? You know how they kind of, they talk for a long time and it seems to take a while to get to the point and then sort of the last three minutes is this little bit where you think to yourself, right, couldn't we just have a sermon full of that? Tell me what to do and how to live. Well, today's, in some ways, feels a little bit like that. It feels a little bit like a passage where it's just Paul telling us what to do. What does it look like to live as a Christian? It's not, it's not quite all he does, right? Because he not only tells us how to live as a Christian, but he also tells us why we live as Christians. It's a wonderful passage because it has both the content but also the motivation, the head and the heart, the instruction and the incentive. Now, uh, last week, as we saw the, the, the requirements for the elders in the church, one of the most important things was, well, how they live, their character, but also that they would hold on to themselves the sound doctrine, the faith passed on from the apostles. And so today's passage in chapter 2 begins with Paul's instruction to Titus in contrast to those false teachers, Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Now, if you want to know what is healthy, whole, sound, what goes with right doctrine, well, here it is. Now, usually, uh, when we read these sort of chapters from Paul, he, he kind of lays out the doctrine first. He tells you the sort of the theory, as it were, before moving on to the practice. In this passage, it's back to front. We're, we're going to work the other way. We're going to talk about the practice first and then work out the why. Now, uh, in, our, in our passage here, Paul is uh, speaking, addressing five or six different groups, depending on exactly how you count it, right? The older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, slaves, and then Titus. He may be included in the younger men. And as we work our way through it, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide which one you are. I'm not going to tell you that you're a, a young one or an old one. Um, I think most of us in different contexts might be one or the other. Um, in, in, uh, in this context, I think I'm probably count as a young man <laughs> but you know having just turned 40 at Macca's after night church I find myself being one of the old ones right I have a grey hair now just one but I have one so there's some wisdom coming there I'll leave it up to you but the thing to remember is that God challenges culture each one of us lives in our human culture, the things that we're used to. So perhaps the bit that we need to listen to is the bit that we feel most uncomfortable about. As we go through it, there may well be part of God's Word that speaks specifically to you. So that's what we're doing, how to live Christianly and why to live Christianly. Let's talk about how first. And Paul says to Titus, first of all, this is what you are to teach older men. Look with me. Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. Older men, 
are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love and endurance. That's a good picture, isn't it? It's, it's weighty, it's serious, it's sober, well, not necessarily in the sense of not drinking, but that, that old sense of sober-minded, the man who is worthy of respect, who stands tall, who stands proud, who is a, a pillar, not a hypocritical one, not somebody who's painted on a face, not somebody who looks on the outside like they is something that they are not, but rather they are sound, did you notice, in faith, love and perseverance. They're sound in faith towards God. It's born out of a deep relationship with Jesus. They're sound in love towards others. They genuinely want good for those around them and they are sound in endurance in themselves. They persevere. You keep going, man, it's easy, isn't it, to feel the weight of the world. It really is. The pressure of family, the pressure of work, the pressure of culture, it feels relentless and never-ending. We are called to stand, to carry that load, to be those who are steadfast, rock-like, if you like. You know, to, to be known as somebody who is dependable, reliable. You give your word, it's known that you will keep it. There is somebody in need, it is known that you are the one they can speak to. You are looked to as one who will, is a source of security, really, for their family, for their community, for the people around you, for those at church. I suspect most of us still aspire to be that sort of a man. Now, I was, I was trying to decide whether <clears throat> to name examples of these. Because all of them, I see them in our church. I could pick people and say, well, actually, what you need to do is be like so-and-so. And I even had some names in mind. And then I thought, you know what? The problem is they are the sort of people who would hate being named. It's the last thing they would want. So I'm not going to name them, and I'm just going to leave you to imagine whether it was you or not. <laughs> you can decide for yourself. Oh, did he think me? Did he not think me? We want to be that sort of person. But you know what, our culture has a couple of different wrong pictures. I want to I just kind of suggest a, a, a wrong picture, if you like, for each one of these as well. Two wrong pictures, in fact. Our culture says that older men, rather than being this sort of reliable, almost, if you like, slightly boring kind of character, really what older men should do is, well, it's, it's kind of the rich playboy, right? You retire young with enough money in your nest egg so that you can do whatever it is that you want. You can spend the money on the fun and the adventure and the experiences that you couldn't when you were younger. Maybe you trade the wife in for the younger model. Maybe you go and chase after all the pleasures and delights that you want. That's what our culture says to older men. You just look at the advertising for any of the, sort of even the retirement homes or villages, they are all geared as, come and live your best life now. Right? The golf course ads all have these... Anyway, you get the point. Rich young playboy... Or our culture also has the picture of the domineering overlord. Right? You are the man, you are the one who has the power and the authority and everyone else needs to submit to themselves to you. Neither of those are what we see here. A man who is self-controlled and worthy of respect. Well, it says that to older men, older women. Verse 3. In the same way, 
Right? So all those things that we just said about men, ladies, that can apply to you. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behaviour. Not slanderers. Not slaves to excessive drinking. Isn't that interesting, the specific things that he picks on? Out of all the character traits he could have said, don't do that, he picks those two. Don't slander, right? Be very careful what you do with your tongue and not slaves to excessive drinking. Rather, the positive, they are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women. Reverent in behaviour. That's not, a, not an everyday word, is it? Reverent. And that sense that you, you, you carry about with you the knowledge of the Lord God Almighty and you live to please Him. You speak what is good. You teach what is helpful. Now, ladies, we need you. Church family life cannot function without you. You have a ministry that is truly and most deeply yours. The young women need you. Our young women are doing it really, really tough. I mean, you, you know that. You've been through that phase of life. You know how hard it is. Particularly those who've gone through that phase of having the young kids and the family life that's just chaotic and it's hard and you're trying to make the money stretch out far enough and you're trying to make daily decisions that affect the well-being of your family when you're exhausted and you have no capacity to make decisions. You're trying to be good for the people around you. You're trying to care for your husband. You're feeling lonely and isolated. I mean, just think of my own wife and, and the last decade worth, right? The life of a mum of little kids means that she rarely gets to hear a sermon in church because the littlies have to go out to the creche and she hardly gets a chance to have a conversation with someone after church because someone's climbed a tree and fallen out and we've got to go and deal with it. And it's just on and on and on it goes. They need you. If you are an older woman, someone who's been through it and can help, can teach them, can guide them, can inspire them, can just be with them. Ladies, reverent, using your tongue for good, encourage the young women. Now, what are some wrong pictures? What does our culture present instead of what an old woman should be like? I mean, even just the term is a bit derogatory, isn't it? Old woman. Well, the hen-pecking grouch, that's one of our culture's pictures, isn't it? You're stuck at home, you've got the, the hubby who's maybe starting to fade a little bit and you're just kind of, you know, always a whinge. Oh, come on, you. Or perhaps the alternative, the opposite end of it, is actually the woman who thinks that she's finally free to do whatever she wants. Right, I've spent my life slaving for the husband. The kids have finally grown up. I, I stuck around for their sake more than anything else. But now I can finally be free and do what I want. Now, again, a picture of somebody who is self-controlled, worthy of respect, reverent in their behaviour. Now, did you notice, though, that the older women are to teach the younger women? There's a little quirk in this passage. Titus is to teach the older men. Titus is to teach the older women. Titus is to teach the young men. And the older women are to teach the younger women. Now, maybe um, specific to being a single minister, maybe. I don't know if that's what Titus was or not. But either way, ladies, again, this is a special ministry for you. 
And what is it that they are to teach? Well, verse 4, they are to teach what is good, that they may encourage the young women to do what? This is surprising, by the way. I, I don't know if this verse surprised you as you heard it. They are to teach the young women to love their husbands. Hmm. To love their children. To be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands, that God's word will not be slandered. Isn't that a strange verse? You need to teach them to love their husbands. I mean, we think, what? Isn't that... What a strange sentence. Right? You, you fall in love and you get married. Isn't that how it works? Like, what's this teacher? Love your own children? Isn't that the most natural thing in the world, to love your children? Well, actually, not always. I know women who find it hard to love their own children. For all sorts of different reasons. And in a culture where marriages were more often than not arranged, it makes perfect sense to have to teach you to love your husband. I take it this isn't the sort of the, the, the Jesus love that we talk of, right? Not necessarily that sacrificial love. That's the husband's role we read in Ephesians 5. This is just affection and friendship. The it is the desire to do good, right? It is born out of wanting to um, give of yourself for the good of husband and children, for the good of the household. Uh, uh, look, the call here is for the woman who is married and has children to learn to want to do good for them. Our culture makes this so hard, by the way, because the pressures, again, the pressures on our young women are crazier than they've ever been before. Like they're being told in one ear that they need to be back in the workforce as soon as possible and make sure that they don't miss out the opportunities on the career, they've got to be able to succeed, they've got to be financially independent, they've got to be able to do all of these things. And then on the other hand, also the pressure of, well, what you naturally feel to manage the household, to care for the husband, to look after the children. Love your children enough, Paul is saying, to sacrifice for them. Now, they are to be self-controlled. They are to be pure. Homemakers. There's an unusual word, isn't it? There's a word that our culture hates, by the way. I mean, you just think about what it encourages young women to be. Homemaker? I wonder if there's any HSC kind of advice giver who's in the middle of saying, well, what ATAR do you need to get to get into university? And she says, ah, actually, I'm not super fast because I want to be a homemaker, right? And he would, well, you can't, you've got to go to uni, right? You've got to go to TAFE, you've got to get a job, you've got to be independent, you've got to be educated, you've got to be trained. Our world looks down on being somebody who cares for your home. Kind, and then another one of those rude words in our culture, submissive to their husbands. Their own husbands, by the way. This isn't submissive to anyone's husband. This isn't a, a blanket teaching to say, well, women must be all doormats. But isn't it interesting that God's word will not be slandered? It's got, a, it's got a clause to it. As we live this way, as young women live this way, as older women live this way, as older men live this way, and I take it even as the younger men do, as we'll see in a moment, the point is that people who look at us can't slander God, they can't accuse us of wrongdoing. Now, let's be clear, I don't believe this to be a passage that's saying that all women must be married and have children. I'm not, this is not saying that. It was an expectation because it's the norm. 
Well, throughout pretty much all of history, it's been very normal for a young woman to get married and have children. That's just the usual, and so in that context you're being taught it. Right? But again, all women, young women are to be self-controlled and pure, to have the attitude towards being a homemaker, to be kind, and to be somebody who seeks to see God's word honoured. Now, what are the wrong pictures our culture tells us of young women? There's many of them. You've got to pick two. Right? Well, what about the, you, you, you've got to be sexy, you've got to flaunt what you have while you have it. You've got to play the field. That image is everywhere. Or perhaps the other one is that you've got to be selfish. No one calls it that. But basically the, the, the teaching is, from our culture, you have to express yourself in the world. Right? You've got to be the, the boss girl who seizes her dreams and tramples anyone in her way. You've got to do what you want to do. You be you. Whatever it is that that means. Right? You want to be an artist, be an artist. You want to travel the world, travel the world. You want to be... And it ends up in all sorts of perversity, of course. You be you. It's terrible advice. You're all a bunch of sinners. No, so much better. You be who God wants you to be. Now, for most of you, who I think will admit to being in the older later category, how are you going to help our young women to be this sort of person? If you don't know any, well, that's where you can start. Go and meet some. <laughs> if you do, love them in this way. Finally then, young men, verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. And that's it. Young men can only have one thing in their heads at any given time. So he can't give them lots of instructions because they'll forget all the rest. They'll just remember the last one, right? The rest will just be gone. But isn't that interesting? Self-controlled in everything. What do they say? The last part of the anatomy to be converted, the last part of the human body to be converted, is a young man's right foot. You just watch them when they get into a car. Right, that right foot's the last thing to be converted. That transition from external control to internal control, that brain development where the young man just doesn't think and goes, oh, oh yeah, I did do the wrong thing. <laughs> and then turns around and does it again. Right? Oh, I didn't think again. Right? Like Self-control, young men. They, they, young men have no innate understanding of risk. Right? Um, you... you, you I was talking with some young men a little while ago and they were talking about speeding in their cars and the particular road that they knew that they could go at this particular speed, just that little bit over the speed limit because the camera wouldn't trip until you were going at a certain speed above the speed limit. So they knew exactly how much they could speed by and not get caught. I thought, well, that's the opposite of self-control, isn't it? That's external control. It's the government imposing control on you, whereas young men, what you need to learn to do is to be self-controlled, to do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you'll get a smack if you don't. The contrast is Titus. Have a look in verse 7. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Now, I think this is an example to all of them, but it specifically hits the young men. Here is a young man who can stand with integrity and who can stand with dignity, who can genuinely say, I do good, 
because it's good. But notice verse 8, your message, Titus, is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. However much our culture may differ from these pictures, it's hard to look at somebody who lives like this and speak ill of them. To look at a reliable, self-controlled, dependable, sensible, upright, sober-minded, honest, well-speaking, not drunken person and speak, you can't speak evil of them, even if you may disagree with some of it. Now our young men, two wrong pictures our culture has of them, number one is that might makes right. It's the, it's the, the picture of the football player who because he is big and brawny and buff can have his way in whatever he wants. And young men, the other wrong picture is that respectable is detestable. That to be somebody who is sensible is boring and bad. To be somebody who is honourable is a joke. Well, finally then, he turns to slaves. And uh, this is what he says, verse 9, Slaves submit to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. Now, I'm not sure that we have a direct analogy for slaves here. Um, I certainly don't think that, our, that we kind of should just take this and apply it to work and say, well, this is, you know, your boss and all that. Um, that's not the same. We aren't bond servants in the way that they were. Perhaps the closest we still have is when somebody funds you to go to university and then you have to, in agreement, for you to go and work for them X number of years. Right? The, the army does this all the time. They'll, they'll pay for you to go to uni, but you have to give them a minimum of four years or whatever it is after university that you'll work with them. Right? That, that's probably the closest, indentured service, um, financial servitude. But even if there isn't a direct application, I think that last point is something that we could well take to heart that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. Now there's a principle I think that applies to all of them. What we are trying to do is live God's way in God's world. Such that if anybody has a problem with us, what they are critiquing is God's way, not ours. It's not our sin, but God's righteousness. How are we going to live Christianly? Well... Who are you and what part of this are you going to take to heart? But why? What's our, what's our motivation? What's the thing that's going to change our hearts to make us want to live this way, particularly when it's challenging and hard? Well, have a look with me, chapter 2, verse 11. All right, begins with that little word, for, or because. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you the reason why. And the reason, he says, is because of the appearings of Jesus. There's two of them that he talks about. An appearing in the past and an appearing in the future. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Something has happened in the past that teaches us now 
to renounce ungodliness. That teaches us now to renounce godlessness, if you remember from last week, to leave behind worldly lusts and instead to live like Jesus did. What happened? What appeared? Well, Jesus appeared, right? He is the grace of God that brings salvation. He is the one who appeared who teaches us God's way. And he teaches us by his example. You want to know how to live a godly life? Go read the Gospels. Look at what Jesus did. You can't copy all of it. He was the Son of God after all. But he will show you a godly life. He teaches us by his word. You want to know how to live a godly life? Listen to what God has to say. And he teaches us by his spirit. And we'll see more of that next week. But the basis of our change is what Jesus has already done. He has bought us in his death. He has poured out his spirit to change us. And he teaches us even now how to do it. But it's also the future. Did you notice in verse 13? While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Why did God save you? I mean, it was God who saved you, let's be clear about that. If you are a Christian, right, you have been saved. It isn't that you saved yourself, God did it. God saved you. Why? To cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. That's why. Because God wants you to be one of his people who is eager for good works. We wait for Jesus to return, to, to bring to culmination everything, the perfection of all that we wait for, including of us, and while we wait, we begin being what we will be then. It's not like we're waiting now, we're just marking time, <clears throat> and when Jesus finally returns, then we'll get to be the thing that we're waiting for. It has begun now. You are now one of God's people, and he wants you eager for good works. We wait for the glory of the appearing of Jesus. Now, can I just point out one little aside for you? <clears throat> verse 13 is a wonderful verse <coughs> that you do well to remember. It is the single clearest teaching in the entire Bible that Jesus is God. Okay, so if you're ever having a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or with anybody who would talk about the deity of God, Titus 2.13 while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of who? Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's, it's unambiguous. It is utterly unambiguous. This isn't two people. We're not waiting for the appearing of God and the appearing of Jesus Christ. Grammatically, in the Greek, these are joined, right? Um, <clears throat> Uh, it's, it's two nouns that are referring to the same thing, two sub substantives, right, that are referring to the same person. 
God and Saviour. Um, if you really want to get technical, it's the Granville Sharp rule. There you go, TSKS, where there is an article followed by two nouns separated by an and. They are referring to the same object. You really didn't care, but now you know. Okay, Th This is the, the, basically the, the clearest example of that in the entire Bible. But even beyond the grammar, just the content. If someone wants to argue the grammar, okay, so be it. The Bible never speaks of the appearing of God. Jesus is the one who appears. The grace of God appears when Jesus arrives. So as we wait for the appearing of the glory, the one who will appear is Jesus. But it's the appearing of our God and Saviour. Therefore, it's Jesus. Alright, for those of you who, are, who particularly want that little verse up your sleeve, that, that, that's, that's the single clearest point, I think, in the entire New Testament where it's just explicitly set out, Jesus is God. Now, let's bring it back to what we're talking about. Application, what are we supposed to do? Well, that was the whole sermon, right? <laughs> you were listening along the way, you heard yourself described, and what it is that you are aiming for. Your heart is gripped by the fact that Jesus died for you to purchase you. He gave you His Spirit who is at work in you now, such that as we wait for Him to return... We begin now to be the people he wants us to be, eager for good works. But it's worth just reading that last verse, let the weight of it settle on us. As Paul says to Titus, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is a word from God. This is how he wants us to live, and why he wants us to live that way. So today's encouragement is a very simple one. Be one of Jesus' people, eager for good works, dependent on him, living his way, such that we too may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ his death and his resurrection that give us, gives us life. And we thank you that even now we await his return. As we wait, Father, please would you make us a people eager for good works. Would you teach each one of us what it is that we need to learn to continue to grow as those who adorn your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.